0: Give us this day more than just our daily bread. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm speaking tonight not about the condition of our hearts, but the condition of our stomachs, at least our spiritual stomachs, and I want to speak about what they require. Uh, John chapter 6 includes the first I am saying from Jesus. Now, we spent last Sunday talking about the profundity of the I am statement, going back to God himself as God reveals himself to Moses, he says famously, regarding his own name, I am that I am. And now we see something that would have been regarded as borderline blasphemy, where Jesus doesn't just refer to that divine name as some external principle or personality, but says, in essence, that he's the embodiment of it. Not only does he say, I am, and then put a period, he says, I am, and then a given object or thing. He says, in this case, I am the bread of life, or the bread of heaven. He's doing two things. He's claiming for himself the authority of God, and even the personality of God, and he's saying that I'm going to give you something that only God can give. And in this case, uses the illustration of bread i think that's important because as we think about bread bread is something unless you are gluten-free and then you know kyrie lays on. i mean it's hard right it's very hard but if you're not gluten-free you know that bread is something that is substantial and filling and something that really can satisfy particularly if you're very hungry it is important he did not say after all i am the broth of heaven which would not have the same effect Uh, Some of you know this because I call you in a panic at 11.45 a.m. I sometimes get a very strong hankering for bad food from a Chinese buffet, where I need an egg roll or I might die. I gourd, and then two hours later, without fail, I say to my wife, let's get some pizza. Uh, For whatever reason, this meal that I have just consumed does not fill me and doesn't really relieve me from hunger pangs for very long. So I think it is a wise thing that Jesus uses the illustration of bread, something that is filling and satisfying, and that is what he has come from God to give to us, something that will finally bring us satisfaction. Now, this passage, John chapter 6, you may know is controversial. There are a lot of issues in it and complexities within it, I will not do it justice. You will leave here unhappy tonight unless you, um, unless you just abide by uh, my headings, okay? So I'm going to break down this passage in terms of three subjects that I think are addressed. They are daily bread, eternal bread, and true consumption. That's what I'm going to talk about. And I think if we deal with these subjects, we'll hit most of the important points of the passage. Daily bread, eternal bread, and true consumption. We'll start with daily bread. You have to understand the setting. Jesus of Nazareth, the famous uh, carpenter, a prophet, has just fed miraculously at least 20,000 people. The text says 5,000 men, but there were women and children there too. And so we have a very, very large crowd. And Jesus gives them a miracle. Note, friends, this is not the miracle of sharing. Sometimes that's how this, this text is talked about. What was the real miracle is that people were nice to each other and they shared sandwiches. And so everybody left, you know, filled and happy that they had a new existential connection with their neighbors. That's not what the passage means. It really means that Jesus took a lunchbox and made a lot of food miraculously out of it. If you have a miraculous Messiah, it's not surprising if he does a miracle or two in his lifetime. And then they start thinking, you know, the last time we were hungry and in the wilderness, but God miraculously provided through his servant Moses a lot of manna, breadish substance. That seems to be happening again. You know, Passover is this week. That's interesting. That's the feast that celebrates our miraculous liberation from mad Egyptian politicians. That's interesting. And toward the end of Moses' life, he predicted that somebody like him would come along and we should listen to him. A great teacher. That's interesting. They started connecting the dots, and the dots formed a crown. And the people thought to themselves, and remember, these are itinerant farmers. These are people with no consistent subsidy. They're thinking, this is a man who can meet our most immediate needs. And so they form a committee to make him a king. Now, they don't have the authority to do that, but mob mentality isn't necessarily run on reason. And so they go and plan to make Jesus a monarch, an impromptu coronation ceremony. But Jesus, in his very Jesus-like way, does something surprising. He uses this moment of enthusiasm about his person and his ability to redirect the crowd's expectations. He says to them, and this is such a buzzkill, says to them, You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, that is a miracle with a bigger meaning, but because you, you ate lunch. You had your fill of the loaves. And then he says to them, Do not work for food that perishes. And then he gives them a history lesson about their manna experience with Moses. He said, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. And they still died. Don't work for food that perishes like your ancestors. He's essentially saying to them, I am not Moses. I'm not your Moses, and you need more than lunch. If you only understood that your problem is so much more than your temporal concern for food, uh, you have a mortality problem. Now, here's the thing. Daily bread has its place. After all, Jesus taught us to pray for it. To pray for real time and space relief from the pangs of this life. It is right and fine to have concerns about your credit cards, about Home Depot expenses, about the the emotional condition of your spouse. It's a good thing to think about your teenage daughter who's being bullied. It's a good thing to pray about getting into grad school and the timing of when to have an engagement. All fine. All fine and in fact, biblically warranted. Uh, The Lord is not someone who thinks that those issues are petty and unimportant. And remember, according to Jesus, you're worth more than birds. You're worth more than other things. And to bring those concerns before God is not only permissible, it's something that you ought to do because your Father cares about you more than you care about yourself. But the problem with this crowd is that they were looking only for temporal gains from some magic Messiah who could make the immediate less painful. One who could make debts disappear. And what Jesus wanted to give them was something more, not less than that, but more than that. Much more. We have a Messiah who wants to set aside daily bread just for a moment to offer his audience something grander. Eternal bread, if you will. Let me say something about eternal bread. I learned about this uh, by and a, a good example that was shown to me when I was in college. Now, when I was in college, we ha- I was part of a club, an on-campus club. I was part of the Yacht Club. Are you not all impressed? This poor kid from Western Pennsylvania finally made it. I was part of the Yacht Club. The only downer was that Yacht stood for Youth Against Complacency and Homelessness Today. It's kind of dumb, right? I mean, but it was meant to be ironic, you know, interesting. But it was dumb. But that was the name of the group, and I believed in their ministry, and so I went with them into inner city Philadelphia where we would feed the homeless. And we would try to connect the homeless with important and uh, helpful agencies in the city. One day, my friend uh, Tom, who, Tom was one of these people who, if you were suffering, he would see you. He wouldn't avoid hurting people because it might be messy. He would really see people. And he saw this one man, this shirtless, scarred man, drunk as a skunk, uh, leaning against the library wall near the center of Philadelphia. Tom walked over to the man, and uh, he looks up at Tom and says, Hey, you got $5? Had a hell of a day. I need some liquor. I need to go buy some liquor. You had a day like mine, you'd want some liquor too. And Tom didn't even answer him. Tom got down on his knees and he looked this man right in his eyes and he took this man's gnarled hands in his own and he kissed him on the forehead. And this man burst into heavy, heavy sobs, crying and weeping and wailing. That transaction communicated that the man really didn't want five dollars, and the deepest part of him didn't want liquor. He wanted some transcendent loving connection in the moment. That's what he really wanted. Behind all of his temporary so-called necessities, he wanted something more, something greater, and for me, it was a miniature picture, a whisper of what Jesus is trying to communicate to us in this passage, because he says to his audience, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Two words I want to talk about for a moment, endures and give. Endures. You see, Jesus had a conviction, based on his heaven-born insight, that um, Some things in life do not digest or dissolve or disintegrate. That there is, in fact, on the other side of the Jordan, a complete satisfaction that is possible for people. That there is a risen life. That there is something that endures. That that you are not just like a swan or a sunflower. Right? That, That there's something more in you that you were built for a forever life. That hails back to... That great Edenic story, that you could have a Sabbath rest, that your life right now and the things that churn your stomach and keep you up at night, that's not your story. That's not the finish line. Jesus really believed that there was something more, that we ultimately belong as people not to those situations. We belong, friends, not to a nation. (laughs) That was meant to be very funny. Um, uh, Thank God, right? Uh, not Not to an ideology. Uh, not to a mutual fund, not to a department, not to a degree program, not even to other people. Those all all those things are daily bread, temporal things, many of them blessings in this life. But you were made for something eternal. You were made for the fountain, you know, the fountain of life. You were made for the center. You were made for the eternal God. That part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that you match his eternality. Jesus is here saying, I'm offering you food that endures. And then he gives us the most amazing news ever. This enduring bread that leads to eternal life, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you. The Son of Man will give you food that endures. He says that about what he's doing, the give language, six times in this passage. You don't have to work for it. I love how they respond, though, because they clearly don't hear him. Incidentally, as a minister who has tried to emphasize the grace of God, because that is the New Testament's message, um, on occasion I understand the audience's response. Sometimes I hear it. Most often I don't. But the audience says, But what must we do? (laughs) What must we do to be doing the works of God? What's the checklist? I want to know the checklist. I mean, in, in eternal eternal like bliss, there has to be something. There has to be something we need to do. do. Do I need to go to Calcutta? Join the Sisters of Charity? Do I have to meet Francis Chan? Take notes from Francis Chan? Do I have to bathe in the Ganges? Do I have to read, eat, pray, love? Do I have to burn, eat, pray, love? <laughs> Do I have to accomplish a five-year plan? Do I have to stop smoking pot? Do I have to raise children who are polite at least most of the time when they're with other company? You know, what do I have to do to appease the heavens to make sure that my transfer is a really good transfer? And this is what Jesus says. I just love his retort. He said this, okay. If you want work? This is it. This is the work of God, that you believe on him who he has sent. You believe. You want work? That's what it is. You believe on the work that he has sent. It's very hard, you see, for Jesus' audience to accept gifts. Don't you find that true? Have you ever been the, the, the beneficiary of a, like an outlandish inheritance or a gift? Don't you feel that automatically you need to sort of give something back you mitigate the guilt that you feel that this person thought so much of you that they gave you this, but you obviously weren't thinking that much of them or you would have given them something else before. And so there's all this internal, you know, kerfuffling because um, of the immensity of the gift. You know, none of that cheap grace for me. I want to pay for it. That's our attitude whenever, whenever we hear this message. Um, and so some things never change, friends he wants to give us something that endures to eternal life, and he's going to give it to us. And so what Jesus is doing is shifting a focus from the temporal stomach to an eternal one, and and then giving us this gladsome pledge. The very thing you need is the very thing I'm providing. You need bread of life? I'm the baker. I'm going to give it to you. And you don't have to pay for it, and you don't have to earn, earn it, and you don't have to like live your life in such a way that you're always worried that you've proven to me that you're grateful enough. That isn't a gift. That's guilt. I'm going to give it to you. And so you get the hint, I'm going to repeat that six times in one paragraph. So we have daily bread and then this eternal bread. And then we have true consumption. Um, Verse 51, he says, I I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And later, the bread that I give this world is my flesh. What on earth does it mean to consume Jesus as living bread? Now, his audience, at least many of them, took Jesus literally and left because they were grossed out regarding cannibalism. And, by the way, such a thing was entirely forbidden by the Jewish law. Okay. But some Christians have interpreted what Jesus is saying the same way, quite literally, that what we do in worship is we consume Jesus in the sacrifice of the Mass, that the bread and wine miraculously become, after the priest says the words of institution, this is my body, this is my blood, they become skin and blood for us to consume, and therefore we fulfill the words of Jesus here. But I don't believe, in fact, friends, that this is what this text means, I think it means something different. As you may know, Jesus frequently speaks of spiritual matters with stark physical images that are often misunderstood, and he doesn't correct people's misunderstanding. This happens with Nicodemus, you may know. Nicodemus, this very, very wise man, PhD candidate, comes to Jesus at night and says, "Um, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you have to be born again. And what does Nicodemus say? He takes him quite literally. What are you saying? That I need to enter into my mother's womb a second time? I don't know if Jesus rolls his eyes at that point. But he doesn't really answer his objection except to say something nebulous like, what is spirit is spirit, what is flesh is flesh. And Nicodemus goes away more confused. And then we have another instance, the woman at the well taking Jesus literally. He says, I'm here to give you living water. And she essentially says, where's your bucket? You don't have a bucket. Where's the water that you're going to bring up for me? Um, She doesn't understand that he means something different or on a deeper level. Uh, um, Additionally, it would be odd for St. John to unpack a literal theology of the Eucharist, of Holy Communion, when he, from his same gospel, omits the Lord's Supper. John doesn't have the Lord's Supper, as you may know. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 1 Corinthians, they all do, but John doesn't. I'm just saying that I think he's doing something different here. What I want to assert is that the word eating in this text is another way that Jesus speaks about faith or belief. It's a synecdoche for all of you English majors. A synecdoche, eating is for faith. I want you to note that in this text about the bread of life, the primary called-for human response in this bready passage is not eating, which is mentioned six times, but belief, which is mentioned ten times that the Bread of Life chapter is actually about faith. In fact, Jesus uses the same language when speaking about faith and eating, describing them in the same way. He describes their source in the same way, Father, Heaven, describes what was sent in the same way, the Son, Bread, and describes the result in the same way, eternal life. Let me now just read a few uh, examples to you. Look at the language that Jesus uses when he speaks about belief. Verse 29, Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Verse 40, this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. Verse 46, no one has seen the father except he is who is from God. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Sender, the one who was sent, the result of eternal life. Same thing is said about eating. Look at the language Jesus uses when he speaks about eating the bread of life. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, verse 50, so that one may eat of it and not die. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So he says the same things about faith as he does about eating, because this chapter of encountering Jesus is principally about faith. Now, why on earth would Jesus use body and blood imagery for belief? It seems unseemly and untidy. If you're going to talk about faith or compel someone to believe or encourage them to do so, wouldn't you use more pleasing metaphors? But it's important to remember that for Christ, St. Paul, and the other authors of the New Testament, the object of Christian faith is not a tidy Christ, but a massacred one. The object of our faith is not just a miracle worker or a great teacher, sort of a Socratic figure who gives us advice. It's a person who bleeds until he dies as a sacrifice of atonement. Now, why would Jesus speak of belief as eating the body and blood of himself? Because faith is not just a sterile mental ascent of encyclopedic facts that are interesting or noteworthy. Christianity, if it's really taken seriously, is not something you spar about during dinner conversations, you know, debating little points and historical accuracies or inaccuracies. Faith is taking all of those facts and having them by the Spirit internalized in you. They're brought near to you. They're ingested, if you will, into you. This is why the New Testament, when it talks about people and their attachment to Jesus, uses language like, we are in Christ. Uh, Christ is in us. We have a union, a mystical union with Christ. So true consumption means principally to believe. By the way, this text does of course have shadows on Holy Communion. This is why Holy Communion has so much spiritual dynamism, power, because it clearly sets before us in an unavoidable way the object of our faith the body of christ given for you the blood of christ shed for you it presents right in front of us uh, the gospel message here is the massacred christ and because the spirit is present in the sacrament he brings us to that original power and weakness that was demonstrated at calvary but the goal for holy communion is not just chewing but believing that we would come to a deeper place of trust as we encounter the Christ who is in a heavenly manner present with us in the sacrament. Daily bread, eternal bread, and lastly, we have true consumption by faith. How is the condition of your spiritual stomach? Do you have what you need? You know, we so often attempt to um, fill our spiritual stomachs with all sorts of things that will never really bring lasting satisfaction. We do that with, you know, a collection of friends, money, women, men, opinions, cars, or Instagramic popularity. But for a moment, Jesus is taking the daily bread off the shelf and replacing it with himself as the bread of life. That is our central need, friends, the bread of life, because all of us um, live under uh, the ancient spell and curse of Genesis 3. This bread that is Christ offered to us is enough to nourish us through the fast of death. You know, many of us tremble at the very thought of death or tremble at what comes after it for us. You know, but for those of us who tremble, there will be on the other side a great surprise for us. Many of us will be very surprised that on the other side is Jesus looking right back at us. We didn't think we'd make it, but we'd made it. Because while we were surprised to see Him, He was never surprised to see us. And so when you bite down today on the bread of Holy Communion, believe the Gospel. Believe the Gospel that you are loved, You have a substitute, um, and you have a risen Lord. Uh, And know that your eternal future is secure, not because of how many spiritual push-ups you can do, but because of blood that was shed on your behalf. And may the satisfaction you have from that bread of life give you a sense of solidity for the future and alter your life in the present. I am the bread of life who came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread... He will live forever. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.